Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's Episcopal lesson from Book of 1 John, Chapter 1, Verse 8, through Chapter 2, Verse 2, and today's Gospel lesson from the Book of John, Chapter 21, Verses 1 through 19. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now our gospel reading from John. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because there were so many fish. The disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. For this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, 
tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to bow your heads for a prayer, if I may. Almighty God, by whose spoken word all things came into being, speak to us this morning through our worship of you, that we may be inspired by your Holy Spirit and drawn to follow and proclaim Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you. When I did that at the early service, they were a little slow on the comeback. So thanks for jumping right in. Those of you in the pews and those of you watching virtually, it is a real honor to be in this great church uh, that is known not just in your area of Nashville. This church is known throughout the country. I'm way down there in Houston, and I hear wonderful things about, one, uh, about what happens here at Brentwood United Methodist Church. And having been here now for two services and beginning my third, if I were retired and living here, I'd probably come to church here. So don't let that get back to my, my bishop in, uh, in Texas. Um, but I'm, I, really, it's an honor to be here. And I want to say I've been ordained 31 years, and I've hired a lot of clergy over the years, and I've met a lot of clergy over the years. Finding good clergy is tough. And you all are so blessed with your pastor, Davis Chapel. And I'm sorry he can't be here with you. And we're praying for him. He and I have been texting each other over the last few days. But he's really brave to entrust his pulpit to this foreigner from down there in Texas. By the way, I love the pulpit. I want to get one of these at home. So <laughs> my children, one of they wouldn't listen to me if I did that. But um, Adam and um, Casey, you, you all, I hope you know how blessed you are. And to be here with these wonderful musicians today, this choir, the children's choir at the last service, just been a great, a great morning. And then Carla Barrios, uh, Davis's right hand has been walking me all over the place so I don't run into walls. So lots of gratitude. Uh, my wife and I have lots of ties to my wife, Laura, who's here at this service. Um, lots of ties to Nashville. We have lots of family, lots of friends here. And among those, we count dear and special to us are uh, Janet and Jeff Byers. Many of you know Janet and Jeff. Jeff uh, went to be with our Lord during COVID after a long, courageous battle with cancer, but we actually tuned in and watched his funeral service here. So that's really the reason that um, uh, I'm here is because of uh, Janet's introduction to, your, uh, to Davis, and I'm grateful for that introduction. And then uh, I will say after the service, as you heard, I'm, I'm going to do a little book presentation in room A291. 
that way, I think. Uh, and um, I have been at St. Martin's for 16 years, and 11 and a half of those years, I was very fortunate, my wife and I both were, not just to serve in that place, but to get to know President uh, and Mrs. George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush, uh, really wonderful people. It's been five years since they died, which is hard for me to believe. I officiated and preached at both of their services. But this is a story about their faith. A lot of people knew lots of things about the service they had rendered, uh, but a lot of people did not know about their faith journey, which is what my wife and I get, got to witness. And so uh, it's received some nice endorsements, including by your fellow Nashville folk, uh, Amy Grant and John Meacham and others have given it nice endorsements. So if you can come, uh, I invite you to join us. Books of Millions here, and there's going to they're supposed to bring a supply of books. So I'll take some time and sign those if that's what you want to do. You might want to wait and hear the talk first and decide if you want to buy it. So uh, I noticed you folks, the, the clergy here dress differently than we Episcopal clergy. So I hope you'll forgive the collar. It's not for show. This is what we wear. Uh, I don't wear it at home. You'll be glad to know. But, uh, but it is what we wear when we're doing our work. And sometimes people raise it. What is that about? And we have a little preschool at, uh, at St. Martin's in Houston. And uh, the way in which I was humbled uh, happened with an encounter with a little preschooler. As I was walking through the preschool hall one day, one of the preschoolers stopped, pointed right at my neck and said, what is that? And I said, oh, this. yes, what is that? And I said, that's, that's my collar. And I wear it because I'm a priest. And if I, were a, if I were a fireman, I might wear something different. If I were a a doctor might wear a stethoscope if I were a policeman. But I'm a priest, and this is what, this is what priest wears. And wanting to connect with this dear child, I, th these are easy to come off. And I took it off, and it's actually made out of plastic. And, uh, and so I, I said, would you like to feel this? And she just, it has little holes in the back, and it has on, on the, on the embossed right below the holes, it says, Clara Cool which means you're cool if you wear a collar. And it's also air conditioned. Uh, and, these little, and I said, can you read those letters there? And she said, yes, I can. I said, you can read? She said, yes, I can. Tell me what you read there. And she looked down and she said, kills ticks and fleas for up to six months. <laughs> maybe I should stop there. I think I maybe I should stop there. So that, and, and um, uh, Adam told me if it, if it worked at all at the early service, it'd work great here. So I'm glad you were. So let's, let's talk a little bit about these wonderful, powerful lessons. I love rags to riches stories. And um, I guess we might call them surprise ending stories. For instance, Leon Uris, who was the author of the 1958 bestseller Exodus, failed high school English three times. When Lucille Ball began studying to be an actress in 1927, she was told by the head instructor of the John Murray Anderson Drama School, try any other profession, any other. In 1959, a Universal Pictures executive dis dismissed Clint Eastwood and Burt Reynolds at the same time, telling Burt, you have no talent, and Clint, you have a chip on your tooth, your Adam's apple sticks out too far, and you talk too slow. In 1962, when a group of four young musicians played their first record for the Decker Recording Company, an executive told the upstart rock group, the Beatles, we don't like your sound, groups of guitars are on their way out. Thomas Edison's teachers complained that he was too slow. When Alexander Graham invented the telephone in 1876, President Rutherford B. Hayes said, that's an amazing invention, but who would ever want to use it? Fred Astaire, 
who, who was an Episcopalian, by the way. He was an Episcopalian, but he didn't wear a collar. But his Episcopalian used to keep framed and on his mantle at his home the report of his first audition. On it were written these words, cannot act, slightly bald, can dance a little. What if we lived our entire lives through with the labels others have given us? What if the artist Rodin, whose father claimed he was a failure, just believed it? What if after his first performance at the Grand Ole Opry, when he was met not with cheers and applause, but with quiet and stunned audience, stunned faces at what they had just heard, what they had just seen, what if, what if Elvis Presley let that moment define him and just put his guitar down and went back to driving a truck? What if, what if the Apostle Paul got stuck in the courtyard forever hearing the crow of the rooster three times again and again and again, with each crow announcing this one whom Jesus had called the rock was now the one who had turned his back on the Savior. The story could have ended there, but it did not. And we see that in the gospel lesson today. Here we have what is known as the reinstatement of Peter. Peter had thrice denied knowing Christ on the eve of his crucifixion. And after Jesus' resurrection, he and Peter have a reunion of sorts on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus thrice asked Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes. It was likely more for Peter's benefit than anything. Peter, no doubt, was plagued with guilt and in this intimate moment, Jesus' threefold question and answer session is a kind of spiritual therapy allowing Peter to release his threefold burden, not of one denial, but of three. Jesus had forgiven Peter, but Peter needed to release the guilt with his own lips. And in doing so, Jesus then reinstates him. But it was more than that, wasn't it? I mean, this is not just a passage about Peter being naughty and Jesus giving him a big old hug. This is a living parable, a revelation about the nature of God's grace and mercy and the purpose behind it. As God in Christ was with Peter, so God in Christ is with us. So beyond this story, what might this speak to you and me today? Let me suggest at least two things, and I'm gonna put them under the heading of the reason you were forgiven. First, the entire passion drama, Jesus's death and resurrection was about restoring the bonds broken between humans and God by the power of sin. Make no mistake, the gospel is about healing lots of things, but the sin problem, the forgiveness problem, the guilt problem could only be tended to and healed by God's mercy and grace. Think of the things that keep you up at night. Once you, once you take worry and woe about those you love off the list, is it not for most of us those things we wish we had done but failed to do or those things we did but we wish we had not done? And yet every single one of us have sinned since our toddler days. We could never really count up the sins we have committed in a lifetime. We cannot undo the past or reverse our actions. So without some kind of true and permanent pardon, we're doomed forever to live behind the bars of a guilty soul. 
Now, let me say, uh, in Texas, um, I've, I've been fortunate to get to know another Texas preacher, Max Lucado. He's become a friend. He's preached for us for a few times at, at St. Martin's, and he and I talk on a regular basis. And one of the things that Max told me years ago about his preaching is, is preach as if there is a broken heart in every pew. So this sermon may not apply to a lot of you, but I suspect there's at least one person in each pew that it is plagued in some way by what happened in the past. I'm not a big fan of name tags, you know, those name tags we have to wear, in large part because my handwriting is horrible and I would write my name and people would always come up and they say, what is your name? I can't read. And so fortunately, my wife, Laura, has rescued me now. When we go to a, a party, as, as we did yesterday for a family member at a birthday party near for, here, and she wrote my name so people didn't come up. Um, what if, what if Peter was wearing a name tag in the courtyard of denial? What might his name tag say? Coward, denier, betrayer. Maybe you have those kind of name tags for gatherings here at Brentwood United Methodist Church that say, hello, my name is, let me get you, you've seen those. Let me get you to sit for a moment and think just for a moment, if, if you had that name tag and you were holding it in your hands, what might that name tag read because of something that haunts you from your past or something you're living in right now? You recall the old saying, sin is not so much something we do, it's something we're in. So if you're holding that name tag and you're thinking, what might you write there? Maybe it's something from your distant past, abuser or gossip. Maybe liar, maybe, maybe adulterer. Maybe it's a label someone else gave you, failure, loser, joke. Uh, maybe it's a label someone forced on you, abused, victim. Or maybe, maybe it's just one you put on yourself. Hello, my name is never measures up. My name is purposeless. My name, my name is addict. Some of you probably think that that's the label you have and that's the one you'll always have. It was applied not with a sticky back, but with permanent glue. There's no coming off. You can pull and pull and pull and the words just haunt you day and night. I suspect Peter felt that way. He wasn't out preaching the gospel right before today. So he's gone back to fishing naked. I'm not sure why that was in there and I'm not sure why he was naked, but he was. And I can only imagine when uh, the risen Lord calls out to Peter from the shores of Galilee, Peter just wanted to jump under the water and die. But Jesus would not let Peter wallow in his despair. No, Jesus had in mind that Peter would be the rock, the one upon whom Jesus would build his church. And Jesus was dead set on Peter doing just that. So Jesus shows up, he shows grace, he shows mercy and allows Peter to claim his own forgiveness. And notice here, Jesus does not come to condemn Peter. He comes to transform Peter. He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, do you need forgiveness? Jesus knows Peter does. So instead, he reminds Peter who he is called to be. Jesus' question is not, are you sorry for what you did that night? It is, do you love me? It is a reminder that Jesus had already forgiven Peter on the cross. It's a reminder that he has already forgiven you. 
And Jesus begins to rip off those old name tags of Peter, sin and guilt and death, and instead put on new ones, loved and forgiven and redeemed. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. Whatever you have written on your name tag, it can be changed if you trust that God wants to do a new thing in and through you. Rosalind Goforth was a well-known missionary to China, and she and her husband, Jonathan, enjoyed this long season of service in Asia for many years, but she came to a point in her life when she felt oppressed by a burden of sin. It was something that happened a long time ago, but it came back as that happens from time to time, began to haunt her. She began to feel guilty, dirty, this missionary trying to do Jesus's work, and she nursed this inward sense of spiritual failure from something that happened a long time ago. And finally, one evening when all was quiet, she settled at her desk with her Bible and her concordance, determined to find out what God wanted to do with her failures and her faults and her sins. And she wrote at the top of the page, what God does with our sins. And here's what she found, 17 truths. There was a lovely older woman at the, at the early service today. She was taking notes wildly and she said, would you slow down when you do this at the next service? And then I'd say, well, these verses are actually on your reference page. So they're on your reference page if you wanna take them home later today. And here's what she wrote. Number one, he lays them, lays those sins on his son, Jesus Christ from Isaiah. Number two, Christ takes them away, John 1. They are removed an immeasurable distance as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. When sought for, they are not found, Jeremiah. The Lord forgives them, Ephesians. He cleanses them all away by the blood of his son, 1 John. He cleanses them as white as snow or wool, Isaiah and Psalm 51. He abundantly pardons them, Isaiah 55. He tramples them underfoot, Micah 7, 19. He remembers them no more, Hebrews 10, 17. He casts them behind his back, Isaiah 38, 17. He casts them into the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. He will not impute us with sins, Romans 4, 8. He covers them, Romans 4, 7. He blots them out, Isaiah 43, 25. He blots them out as a thick cloud, Isaiah 44, 22. And then 17, he blots out even the proof against us, nailing it to his son's cross from Colossians. And that is what we call a Bible study. 17 verses that Rosalind found. And she wrote them on that paper and she began to meditate over those verses and pray over those verses and trust in those verses and the good news within them. And as she did, her feelings of oppression and shame could not withstand the onslaught of the biblical truths and hope here. And the verses she found became flags of victory flying over her heart. Now, what about you? Maybe that one person in the pew. Do you feel oppressed? Do you feel some sense of shame? Can you let these truths that spoke to Rosalind, can you let these truths replace your name tag? You might be quick to say, but others are gonna remember. Yes, but God does not. Others will not forgive me. Yes, that may be true, but God does. I've always been this way. There's no changing me. Time and time again, the biblical truths are that God is about not just the business of healing, not just the business of forgiving, but transforming. You do not have to wear the name tag you put on yourself or someone else put on you. 
You do not have to be defined by your past. Let Jesus take those name tags off. Look into his eyes, hear his words. Do you love me? And if you can say yes, really the clock is not turned backwards. It actually springs forward as if whatever ugly thing in the past that eats away at you never even happened. Now that's reason one why you were forgiven because God loves you and God does not want you to live with that burden of sin and guilt. He wants you to be free for the second reason you were forgiven and what is that? When Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you, Jesus does not say, there, there, my boy, now you go back to your fishing. No, he says, not once, but three times in three ways. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, and then finally feed my sheep. Peter was not just forgiven to be forgiven. He was forgiven for a purpose, and he would join Jesus in a lifetime of serving others. So yes, Peter was forgiven to show Peter the very nature of God, but he was also forgiven so he could do more than he could have ever imagined himself doing. Can, can you imagine how Peter felt the night he denied Jesus? But at that moment that the crow let out that sound, despair, utter despair is not a word that probably even closely approaches what he had in that moment but can you imagine the feeling he felt on the, the reading of today's gospel? What happens there on the shores of Galilee in that moment? Relief, restoration. But my guess is he had no idea what was coming. Notice that the passage ends with the same exact words Jesus first spoke to Peter, follow me. And as he was called to give his life to Jesus at the beginning, Peter is again to do so once again here. And then, only 50 or so days after Peter's great sin, forgiven and reinstated by Jesus as grace and mercy, God actually chooses Peter, of all people, as the keynote speaker on that first Pentecost, what we call the birthday of the church. How far he had come. So, that same as call is on you and me. We're not just forgiven so that we can feel free from the burden of sin and death. We are forgiven to be the living gospel to all we encounter. We are forgiven so that we can continue Jesus's work. Forgiven to tell others of God's forgiveness. Forgiven to heal others. Forgiven to serve others. Forgiven to love others. Now, uh, before I land the plane, and I am gonna land the plane, I'm circling BNA right now, but I can see the runway. So, but before I land the plane, let me humbly suggests what happened back then and there on the shores of Galilee actually applies very much to the time in which we are living now. Perhaps now more than ever, and what I'm about to share is absolutely 100% totally politically incorrect. It's good to be a guest preacher. <laughs> so email Davis after he feels better. After he comes in. But today's, today's cancel culture as it's come to be known, as it's taken on kind of greater and greater meaning and extremism in our culture, in the public square, we hear about it more and more, it seems like. It, it, that is perhaps the biggest stumbling block to removing old name tags. Now, I'm not saying that people should not apologize for things they have said or done in the past. I'm not saying that criminal or unethical or immoral behavior should be excused, wiped away with cheap grace that demands nothing and ignores everything. 
But I am saying that the cancel culture, which demands a pound of flesh for everything done and left undone in one's past, is completely antithetical to the atonement offered by Jesus Christ. It simply does not square with what we Christians believe, and it offers no hope, not just for some offenders, but for anyone. Because here's the deal. We, all of us, have said and done things we regret. As the Apostle John puts it in the first lesson, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Not too long ago, the cultural journalist Lagaya Mishan wrote an article for the New York Times entitled, The Long Tortured History of Cancel Culture. And I certainly commend that to you. I'm happy to pass that on as a note later. But she hits the nail on the proverbial head when she makes very clear this observation that students of history and society have known for years. Cancel culture is just another form of scapegoating, which frankly probably goes back to the days of the Neanderthal. And this is what she wrote. The, The modern scapegoat performs the function of uniting otherwise squabbling groups in enmity against a supposed transgressor who believes the condemners of the burden of wrestling with their own wrongs. It relieves the condemners of the burden of wrestling with their own wrongs. And there you have it. Calling out others for their past deeds and sins enables the accuser to turn his or her gaze from the one in the mirror. It empowers a false narrative that what they did is worse than what I did. My moral fiber in some way trumps your moral failings. So I'll jump on the bandwagon if it means I don't have to come to terms with something as ancient and out of date as the words of an old, irrelevant follower of Jesus named Paul who penned these words, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No, today's cancel culture has a different take. Some sins are worse than others. Some people are worse than others. Problem with that is it's a cultural cul-de-sac. There's no escape when you're the scapegoat. And in today's environment, it's probably just a matter of time before you are next, you're tagged, you're it. And in that game, you can't tag in return. No amount of apologies, no plethora of mea culpas are enough. And friends, so I wanna say this to you again, my Methodist friends, that is completely and patently against the gospel of Jesus Christ and his work of atonement on the cross, and you and I should reject it. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. And perhaps for today's purposes, he might as well have said, it is canceled. Yes, we are responsible for our own actions, and in this world, there are certain prices we have to pay for merely saying, I'm sorry, to paying restitution, and perhaps for some jail time, who knows? But the Christian hope has a response to the endless tirades of the cancel culture. And perhaps few have said it better than Jesus' beloved disciple, John, who wrote in the first epistle, attributed to his name, the one we just heard, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Listen again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Forgive means forgive. And all means all. And finished means canceled. When you bring your sin to God, 
When you fall at the feet of his grace and mercy, it is forgiven. Your past in God's eyes is canceled. Full stop. That's why we call our gospel good news. As the author of Hebrews puts it, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer a need for anything. In other words, where there is the cross of Jesus, there's nothing you can offer other than your sin and guilt. When you do that, God will forgive your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness, full stop. Okay, forgive my little post-Easter tirade, uh, but I'm kind of over the cancel culture. And I'd rather turn to one who died and rose so that my sins of a decade ago or a year ago or last week or last weekend, and frankly yours, can be healed and forgiven and wiped away. That's a far better pathway out of the past than constantly looking for the next one to cancel. Jesus provides a different kind of cancel culture, and it's not soaked with judgment and punishment and revenge, but instead it offers grace and forgiveness and mercy. And it does so with three of the most potent words ever spoken, it is finished. And therein rests our hope for redemption. The same thing he offered poor old guilty Peter on the shores of Galilee, he offers to you and me. Okay, back to the rags and riches story, those surprise ending story. Let me end with this. In 1952, Edmund Hillary attempted to climb Mount Everest, the highest mountain known to humans at the time, 29,000 feet straight up. And a few weeks after his failed attempt, he failed attempt, he was asked to address a group in England. And Hillary, Hillary walked up on the stage and he had prepared the, a big picture of Mount Everest. And he stood in front of the, of the picture before he began his talk and he made a fist and then he pointed at the mountain and he said in a loud voice, Mount Everest, you beat me the first time, but I'll beat you the next time because you've grown all you're gonna grow, but I'm still growing. And on May 29th, only a year later, Edmund Hillary succeeded in becoming the first man to climb that summit. You know, you just can't change the past. What has been has been, but whatever you've done in the past, God's grace is bigger than that. That sin will always be that sin, but by God's grace, you keep growing and growing more and more so that what has been does not forever have to be. You do not have to keep wearing the same old labels. Let God give you a new one, healed, born anew, released, loved, child of God. Why you were forgiven? Because friend, God loves you. And as he loves you, grow and grow and grow in that love, grow in grace, grow in that life and then get out there and tend and feed his lambs and his sheep. Help others take off those old ratty, torn and tattered name tags. Give them the ones for which Jesus died, the ones for which he rose. Those, by the way, those are permanent. And that, my friends, is the reason you were forgiven. Amen.